Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're talking about Mythos Tomes. Before we get into all that good stuff, though, what is going on? Well, Matt, you ran a game online last week. Yeah, yeah, that, was, that went pretty well. It's a playtest of our number 22 scenario that's going into the next issue of the Blasphemous Tome. And this was, we put a word out to the backers, and you got like four people playing your game, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a good good number. So it got through it in about four hours. So yeah, you can do it in a single session, which gives me hope when I'm going to run it at contingency next year that I can get it into a single slot. So this is something we do kind of occasionally. So do keep an mm. eye on your emails if you back us via Patreon. Because sometimes, even quite short notice, we'll send out a message to say, do you want to play an online game with one of us? And that was the case. And fortunately, we had a good number of people take up the offer. And sometimes it's not just one shots, because when you did your playtest of the final chapter of The Poison Tree, you, oh, did, yes. you did that via Patreon as well. And mm-hmm. and those lucky people got roped in for how many months? Uh, that was nearly <laughs> a year, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, keep an eye on your emails. And shortly after this episode goes out, if you are a member of the Cult of Chaos, which you really should be because it's free and gives you access to all sorts of cool stuff, you will see the final part of the Flotsam and Jetsam campaign come out. This is the organised play campaign that I I worked with a number of people on, uh, which is in four instalments. It's designed to be fairly modular. You can play it as an entire campaign. You can play it as a bunch of one-shots. And there's some very cool stuff in there. But Scott, what is the Cult of Chaos? Yes, the Cult of Chaos is a program that's put together by Chaosium basically to encourage people to run Call of Cthulhu or any Chaosium games in public forums. Uh, so whether this is a convention or at your local game shop or uh, some kind of meetup. So you get rewards for doing so, you get free scenarios. Uh, it's really worth doing. That sounds great. How do I join? <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. All right, fab. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, the Blasphemous Tome issue five is coming. So there's still time if you're not a backer yet to get your uh, to get your money to us, and then you go, you'll get at least one or two, depending on what level you back us at, uh, copies of the tome. Yeah. So if you want a copy of the fanzine, uh, just come on over to Patreon and back us there, and you'll find links to that in the show notes. And just to clarify, everyone who is backing us by the end of December 2019 will get a physical copy, at least one physical copy, of The Blasphemous Tome. And now on to our main topic, Mythos Tomes. Now, Mythos Tomes are a huge part of Call of Cthulhu, and somehow we've managed to get through 171 episodes without really focusing on them. The reason for that is because if you started reading it episode one, you would only be finished reading the bloody thing by now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get into that. That's actually a really good point. Well, anyway, in this episode, we'll take a look at how they work, both as a plot element in the game and mechanically, and bounce around a few ideas about how we might use them ourselves. Yeah, I don't know about you, but whenever I have a scenario and the characters go into the library in the spooky old house or whatever, it's like the players look at the shelves and say, what books are there? (laughs) Yes. And I'm like, oh, there's some books on history and like local things and Greek myths. But you know what they're really asking? 
Is the Kama Sutra up there? <laughs> <laughs> but are there any tomes? Is that what they're asking? Yeah. I Sometimes, think, yeah. I think so. Well, I mean, certainly I remember from even my earliest experiences of playing Call of Cthulhu, both as a player and as, as a keeper, was every time, yeah, not just at the library, but people would go into bookshops in town. But there was one scenario that involved a travelling carnival, and it was sort of, oh, well, maybe there's someone there that's got a bring and buy stall or something like that. And players were always on the lookout for, yeah, that copy of the Necronomicon that might just have yeah. uh, found its way onto the there's Shelf. a bunch of Dan Brown, some Enid Blyton, the Necronomicon, Encyclopedia Britannica, yeah, and Barbara Cartland. Yeah. yeah out of that log, the Necronomicon is probably the least sanity blast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Dan Brown, there's a sand check right there. Oh, God. <laughs> but I think that is an issue I have, certainly, when they are confronted with a whole raft of books. How do you kind of convey what those books are and what might be of interest I almost want a list of titles to give them so they can thumb through it and, and look for ones that might be of interest to them. I don't know. quite How, how do you handle that? Oh, funnily enough, <laughs> I was mentioning about uh, running a game online recently. Uh, there is a collection of books that turns up in that scenario where I've listed them by, oh, yeah, on this shelf, there's this number of books. There's little tags that have their prices, uh, what editions they are, value, title, that kind of thing. And then this one at the bottom that are completely unmarked, but here's some of the titles. And then you could probably see the player's eyes like up going, hey, gold on the third <laughs> shelf. <laughs> I mean, I guess this could be a library use role, right? So if they make the library use role, they find that book of interest. They mm. find that thing that's either got important information in that's perhaps, you know, a mundane book, or that they find a book that is of mythos interest. One thing that we keep seeing in the fiction and mentioned an awful lot in the game as well, if you look at the write-ups of each one of the tomes, is how rare these books are supposed to be. So you get any given mythos tome and it's been suppressed over the years. There may have been a print run done in 1577, but some zealous protectors of public sanity have rounded up all the copies and burnt them and only a couple have seeped through the cracks. And yet somehow... I mean, this isn't just in, in Call of Cthulhu. We see it in Lovecraft. Every time you turn around, there is a mythos tome or a pile of mythos tomes there, and <laughs> yeah. everyone's read them. But every scenario has got some sort of mythos threat in it, or pretty much every scenario. So it's like, it's not that big a coincidence that there might be mythos tomes there as well. Yeah, but it's like you were saying, I guess where it kind of gets weird in Call of Cthulhu is that whole thing of, yeah, we're in town, I'm going to go to the second-hand bookshop there, look around, and you as the keeper think, oh, yeah, this might be a good chance to get such a book into their hands. And so you know, even the, the more mundane places are going to end up potentially having mythos tomes in them. I suppose one of the reasons also why they're so rare and that few of them seem to crop up on the open market is because having looked through the core book, a lot of the big tomes, I mean, the really useful ones, date back from the 15th through 17th centuries. Now, I know quite a few secondhand bookstores. I mean, I go plundering them quite often. But you might find a book from the turn of the 19th, 20th century in there, normally in not fairly good condition. Books, unless they're kept in very, very well-kept environments with a lot of care and attention taken to them, don't have that much of a shelf life. It's possible a lot of these have crumbled to dust or just fallen apart in the years. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why that happens. I mean, part of it is because old paper stock 
can be quite acidic, so it actually just eats itself chemically. And also, I mean, we talked before about things like bookworms and silverfish mm-hmm. and so on, which you know, can get in there. And Lovecraft does actually mention that in, I, I think it was in The Dunwich Horror, wasn't it? No, no, no it was in uh, At the Madness of Madness, which we just talked about, where he talks about how the copy of the Necronomicon in the Orn Library is actually worm-eaten. Mm. Rather than putting them into general libraries or second-hand bookshops, on the whole, I would put them into the hands of cultists. So if the players raid that cultist's home or somehow defeat the cultist, they get the tome. It's a bit like killing the D&D monster and getting the treasure chest, it seems. <laughs> a, cur- a cursed item that drains your sand. Well, go, go yes. you. <laughs> but don't, isn't that often the case? You know, they are yeah. the, the font of mythos badness in the scenario quite often. So that's kind of a double-edged sword, but it's kind of a reward is getting that tome from them. Yeah, it is possible to treat them in a very reductive purely mechanical way exactly that we want the players to get more mythos knowledge so that they can face the threats further down the line so therefore we get tomes into their hands but the tomes is easy to forget and we see this perhaps occasionally in the stories contain all sorts of other stuff i mean it's not just here is the information you'll need but they might be rich mines of plot hooks or you know weird bits of information that might lead the players in other directions or they might be even weirder than that going almost down malefic territory if they get Mm. into the uh, into the weirdness which we've done an episode on a long time ago yeah the idea that a book can have an agenda Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think often, though, they are just a vehicle for some Cthulhu Mythos points and some spells, right? That's often the case. And I think, you know, if we're putting together a scenario, it's quite often worth tailoring the contents of that tome. I mean, for a start, you know, picking an appropriate book to fit into that scenario anyway, that, you know, would likely contain the kind of information that we want to pass on. But also having us think about you know, what beyond the skill points and spells the players might actually learn from it. One thing that we did in uh, The Two-Headed Serpent, for example, is also used it as a way of conveying skill points in certain languages as well, that if you spend some time studying this, that you will, almost by osmosis, pick up just a few skill points in some languages you might need. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a few books in the core rule, at least one that the name is escaping me now, actually gives you a skill check or percentile points in a cult uh, rather Mm. than giving you a mythos score. Yeah, because I think reading these books to get the information from it, it's not just like a light skim, like you might just read a novel or something like that. I take it that you're reading it in quite a lot of depth to really absorb the information. You're maybe comparing it with other texts. You're doing a, a textual study of it to really get to grips with it it's like if you were reading some kind of instruction manual you might not get away with just reading it cover to cover you might have to read a bit try it out look somewhere else for some more information to understand that bit you've just read and so it's not a straightforward read i think yeah and there are all sorts of reasons apart from that why they might be difficult things to read i remember you know that that ephemera shop that we've all been to in newport pagnall that we've mentioned on the podcast before just to refresh people's memories or if they haven't heard the episodes in which we've discussed it this is a shop that stocks things like old magazines and theater programs and newspapers and people's personal effects sometimes basically if it's on paper and it's old they have it there and you can go in and buy it and 
I remember a while back, in fact, I think it was when we were looking for stuff for Gatsby and the Great Race, they had a few old, I mean, like really old documents, like 17th century, I think, maybe 18th century, mm. legal documents. I mean, they were things like deeds and wills and stuff like that. And these were all handwritten documents on, on big sheets of parchment in, in really quite archaic handwriting, obviously. And I was looking at those and, you know, the, the information they were conveying was fairly simple, but just looking at them, at the way they were laid out, at the kind of sprawling layout, at the the difficulty of, of penetrating that old-fashioned handwriting, even things like the fact that the ink had faded a bit, all made it quite difficult to read. And and that's, you know, before you get into the fact that, you know, the language is old-fashioned. Mm. And I was reading through that and I was just thinking, oh yeah, that's why you have to pass a read English role in order to understand stuff. Mm. Because I'd have to sit down and really study this just to get anything out of it. And this is just one sheet. And I'm not sure at the end I'd necessarily understand it. And even if it's typeset text that's clear to read, it can just be so technical and difficult to grasp the concepts of it. There are various books, if you just go into a general bookshop and look in academic sections, on particularly on topics that you're not familiar with, and open up a really heavy one and read a page, there's probably very little of it that you might understand. And when you start getting into occult stuff, then things get even weirder. So we talked about Kenneth Grant in the Occult and Lovecraft episodes. And yeah, some of his books, if you read through those, I mean, they are very strange in their content. They draw you know, ideas from all over the place, synthesize them in ways that might not make rational sense to people. And just reading through that and trying to comprehend what the fuck he's talking about... Mm. I mean, that's another layer, is that the people writing them may not have been in a particularly rational mind. Yeah. They may be conveying some truths of the Cthulhu mythos within their writings, but if they're written by somebody in that state of mind, then they're not going to be writing them in the most easy-to-understand manner. They may be using all sorts of strange analogies and ways of expressing themselves that just don't you know, make sense to the casual reader. Well, and also they may not be very organised in expressing themselves. Mm. There was a, a mythos tome that I created for a scenario a while back, which was, well, it was written in the modern day and a lot of it is typewritten, a lot of it's handwritten as well. But it was written by someone who basically had encountered a few weird things, had read a few mythos tomes and was synthesising it all, but his mind was broken by the process. And he was writing it on index cards and you know, scraps of paper and post-it notes, and these were all bundled together into multiple box files. And there was a lot potentially that players could learn or investigators could learn from this. But, you know, just digging through it all and trying to find any kind of narrative thread or where the bits fitted together was just going to be impossible to them. You know, you're in for a long reading time when you measure your uh, your length of your mythos tome in boxes rather than pages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But that makes sense, actually. I like the idea of a box, like loads of box files, just with loose sheets and bits of random bus tickets with things scrawled on the back, mm. you know, all just stuffed in there, and you've got to get them all out. And it, that collection forms a tome, but it's not a traditional book. Oh, we know who uh, pioneered that, a certain Professor Angel. Well, indeed, yeah. yeah. And I guess in, in the modern day, you could see analogues to that with perhaps 
you know, hypertext or perhaps, you know, someone who's got a, a OneNote file or something like that or an Evernote file that cross-references and correlates mm. all these things in both, you know, a way that sort of helps cross-reference them, but at the same time is perhaps quite maddening to try to follow because it's all non-linear. I like the idea now of doing a, a mythos tome in a modern setting where all the uh, all the notes are hidden in VBA code. <laughs> so yeah, it's hiding there in plain sight all the time, but you just have to have the right knowledge to be able to go in and find it and then lose San. Yeah, or any source code, just go through and look for all the comments. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, some of the code I've looked at over the years, the comments do seem to be the products of deranged minds. <laughs> I've left a few sarcastic comments in mind before, but that's, that's a different matter. So I think that is definitely an issue I've encountered with players questioning why this book takes so long to read. You know, yeah. some of them have got reading times of up to a year. And it's like, well, I think we've we've discussed why, but that can be difficult to convey sometimes. So I think you do have to consider why that is and give your players a a way of understanding that. Yeah, you could perhaps try to, if they're really objecting to that, I mean, give them a copy of something like Alistair Crowley's Magic and Theory and Practice. That is a book that was written in 1910s, 1920s, uh, so it's relatively modern by cult book standards. And it's it's relatively clearly written, but on the other hand, it's so esoteric and, again, it's a synthesis of so many weird ideas that just trying to get anything useful out of it requires intense academic study. Hmm. When I was working on the rules for Call of Cthulhu and thinking about tomes, I repeatedly thought about the way that people study the Bible. Religious adherents don't just study the Bible once. They go back to it lots and lots of times and seek for greater understanding and greater depth. I think you see that even more in Judaism with Talmudic scholars. Well, I think probably most religious texts are, are treated in that way, right? Mm. But, I mean, the Bible's, I guess, the one I'm, I'm, I'm most familiar with, and that's the one that sort of springs to my mind. And some bits of it, if you were to open up like the Revelations of St. John, the, the final book, and read that, I mean, how do you make sense of that? I'm not a religious person, but if you take that book and equate it with a mythos book and say, well, actually, there is deeper understanding in it, you would have to like read it and study it and, and try and make sense of it. It was yeah. almost impenetrable to do that. Well, I mean, that actually brings up an interesting point, which we see as well in a lot of other occult texts, which is that you know, even if you can read the text and you know, get an understanding of the surface meanings, a lot of it is presented in symbolism and allegory that you need the cultural and historical context to understand, that you will need other reference materials, other source materials, in order to decode this. If you read you know, a medieval alchemical text, you, you might be able to understand what it's telling you in very obvious terms, but in terms of what it's actually trying to convey, the knowledge that's there, you don't stand a fucking chance. Mm. Yeah, I've come across that in some of my research where it, it lists a term quite matter-of-factly, and I'm thinking, okay, is there a footnote? Does it explain what the hell this thing is? No. Okay, right. Now I've got to go back on the internet and find out what the hell this thing means. But there's also <laughs> the added layer that with the cult texts, and I imagine this would apply just as much to mythos texts, that a lot of it was deliberately obfuscated because it was a way of protecting the writer from perhaps censure at the hands of religious and political authorities. 
that if if you were trying to you know, for example, explain how sex magic worked, you'd start talking about roses and crosses rather than, you know, vaginas and penises. Mm-hmm. Because you know, t- talking in open terms would you know, get you arrested or tortured or killed. And, yeah, I would have thought that would apply tenfold to mythos texts. I just like the idea of there now being like a mythos censor out there that reads this and then suddenly takes objection to, yeah, you sorry, you've called it a bikey, you have to call it a winged beastie or something. <laughs> I think another layer of complexity is translations. Mm. Uh, my daughter is studying Old English at the moment, and she's doing going to be doing her dissertation on the final line of Beowulf. <laughs> and that's it. Oh, at wow. one point, she was going to be doing a dissertation on a single word from Beowulf, but the the final line talks about I think it's something to do with the the sympathy that we see for the character, which perhaps puts a, a different slant on him and so on. But you know how you can take a a whole book and have study groups and lectures about it and you know so if we had the necronomicon i can imagine you know us three we're studying the necronomicon we'd get together and like talk about various chapters and debate what it meant and then you refer to other scholars and there'd be some guy in a university in london who was you know sat in his office smoking a pipe who was an expert (laughs) on it it would be years of learning to really get to grips with it, I think. And you yeah. probably never would. And perversely, it might actually be more difficult if the text is in English, because we see the English language changing so much over the centuries, I mean, you know, becoming certainly you know, around the 11th century onwards, you know, almost a different language. I mean, if you go back to texts from, say, Chaucer's time, uh, which you know is is later than that. Then you know even that is incomprehensible. But you know is the fact that there have been so many different linguistic influences in English, so many different languages coming in and being absorbed into it, that you know until you get to about the 16th century, older texts, unless you're an expert, are just incomprehensible. And then you get James Joyce. <laughs> yeah, mm. I said English. No. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what the fact language he wrote in. <laughs> But that's oh. another example of somebody writing in English that's very hard to get to grips with, right? Well, yeah, I remember Scott saying about potentially, I think it was more of an Unknown Armies game than a Cthulhu game, but potentially having someone, a bibliomancer who had a copy of Finnegan's Wake on a ring binder, they just kept going round and round and round. <laughs> I, I suggested that it was the original proofreader or copy editor of, of Finnegan's Wake who had been driven mad by the experience and his mind was just consumed by the book. <laughs> but I think a difference we should draw between mythos texts and real-world texts that people might study, whether it's Beowulf in Old English and interpretations of that, or Chaucer, or the Bible, or other religious texts, is that taking those books, there's lots of different interpretations of them. Mm. Now, there might be lots of different interpretations of the Necronomicon in Call Cthulhu, but actually there is one truth there's cthulhu mythos in the rules of oh i see right yes yeah cthulhu mythos knowledge is kind of the knowledge of the the real universe it's the real truth that man can't handle if you like um so there is a definitive truth and it's a way to get to it i like the idea then that you have these subjective interpretations that perhaps you know as you do in real religions you get 
schisms forming over doctrinal interpretations, that perhaps, you know, you have the cult of Cthulhu and the reform cult of Cthulhu, uh, mm. who have interpreted the Ridier text in a somewhat different way. Maybe it's only two or three paragraphs, but they imply, you know, I mean, going back to what we were talking about in The Mountains of Madness, perhaps one of them implies that the old ones and the great old ones are the same thing. And you see, you know, a different uh, cult that's got together interpreted that text, and they see them as being different things. And now you have two cults who share 95, 99% of their beliefs, who are divided over that one point, and perhaps are at bloody war with each other, as we see in every religion in the world. Yeah, totally. I can just see that line from The Call of Cthulhu about teaching man new ways to uh, kill and revel in ecstasy suddenly becoming, hey, have an orgy! (laughs) (laughs) Taking it from one, one extreme to the other. I thought you were going to say that we'll teach mankind new ways to kill each other mm-hmm. by getting them to argue over religious differences. Well, we have enough of that in politics at the minute. So, yeah, the, the end <laughs> times are coming. Uh, one thing that I keep getting puzzled by is we, we talked about what purpose might be served by giving a mythos tome to a, an investigator. But it's the way some players react to that. You know, there are certainly, you know, many of them, like Matt, who will, uh, yeah, as soon, as soon as there's a mythos tome in play, they'll want to grab hold of it, they'll want to read it, they'll want to get every bit of information they can out of it, squeeze it until the pips squeak. That's because it's mine! <laughs> <laughs> but if you read a lot of online forums from people who repeat conventional wisdoms about Call of Cthulhu, obviously you should never read books and burn them as soon as they come into play. Why do we think that is? Probably it's uh, Cthulhu Dark has a little bit to play here, because you burn books, you gain sanity. Well, but this this predates Cthulhu Dark by decades. I, I remember this being conventional wisdom back in the 80s when Call of Cthulhu was in its infancy. I think it's a bit of a joke. It's not something I... in. I mean, I've definitely encountered that. Mm. But actually in play, I don't think I've had people do that very often. Or I'm, I'm struggling to think if at all. Probably one or two players will do it. Uh, and the rest of the group will look at them open mouthed and say, "What on earth are you doing?" Because uh, often it is a, a vehicle towards finishing the scenario. Is you know reading mm. that tome and getting the, the knowledge in it. Neil did it when we uh, when you ran Realm of Shadows, and I wanted to beat him to death with the bloody thing. All oh, right. Yeah. Yes. So what actually happened there? Oh, uh, he was playing a very hardline religious zealot, and I know it even came up in in the interview when we tried to hire him as his character coming into the last part of the campaign to say, "Are you going to be a fit for the group? Have you got the skills we need?" And it, he threw in this uh, very overly religious comment and thought, "Oh, great, this is going to be a problem, isn't it?" And of course, he found these demonic texts that were putting our souls in peril. And he tried to burn them, and I was like, "You motherfucker! I'll kill you! We needed, we needed that stuff." He played played the anti-Sanderson character really oh, yeah okay. yeah that, I mean I like that that was good I, I like having that that conflict in the party and it makes sense like you've already said mm. there are in the fiction there are groups that have you know burnt these books and in the real world there's plenty we can find plenty of examples of people burning religious texts so yeah I think that's that's just the sort of thing that a player character might want to do and he's going to cause conflict at the table as a keeper, I guess you've got to be very cognizant of that, whether you've got players who've got that kind of inclination. Because if you do structure a scenario whereby you need that tome in order to complete the scenario, then, you know, you have Neil in your group and he decides to burn it as soon as it comes into play. Does that stall the game or does that end up providing, you know, a tragic ending? And you've got to plan for these things. Hmm. Yeah, shoot Neil in the face as soon as he turns up. <laughs> 
not, not as character new. <laughs> like, I think there are laws against that. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Looking at scenarios sometimes, we do find those points where if they do this certain thing, they could fail. But mm. that's like, well, that's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can have a bad ending. You know, you get to the, if only you knew that spell that you, in that book that you burnt, you could have done something about this. But now there's nothing you can do. <laughs> Just got this sound of Nelson going, <laughs> in the background. We've talked in general terms about how we might use these terms in our games, but do you want to explain a little bit about how mechanically they work in 7th edition, Paul? So they have a reading time suggested in a, a big table in the book for each tome. So you've got the idea now of initial and full reading times, is that right? Yes, yeah, so there's an initial reading time. The initial time is that concept of... You get the book and you go to bed with it on your lap and then you come down the next day kind of ashen-faced because you've read too much. But you so haven't really the, necessarily read the whole thing, but you've had an initial kind of scan of it. So it's like skim reading, is that right? Yeah, I would say so, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas a full reading, that's when, you know, you can get the, well, just what it says, a full reading. And then with that concept that we mentioned earlier of doing subsequent readings, you can do you know, a subsequent reading of it, which takes, you know, longer again, and you can get a diminishing return of mythos knowledge, but you can gain more knowledge from that. And so going back to that idea of perhaps needing additional resources to understand some of the symbolism or some of the metaphors and so on that are uh, the, the cultural or historical context of the book, would you perhaps, uh, not not that it's there mechanically in the game. But would you perhaps penalise characters who don't have access to libraries and stuff like that, or perhaps give them advantages, if, you know, speed up the time if they could, say, go along to the Orn Library and cross-reference this stuff with a whole load of other books? I would suggest that would be the case. I mean, in the text, we were careful to say that these reading times are elastic. Hmm. So the keeper can adjust those so if the text says it takes 12 weeks to read this book if that doesn't fit your scenario and you want to say you can read it in a week or two weeks well that's fine i don't really have a problem with that i think that they're suggested times but the suggestion is they should take quite a long time but I think when we get to Pop Cthulhu, that goes out the window even more. Personally, I'm very happy with someone picking up most of the information from the Necronomicon over the course of a weekend or something like that in Pop Cthulhu, because it just fits the pace of the game much better. Yeah. Absolutely. They've got to do something on that red line going across the map. Yeah, so. exactly. And these often are things that we do on downtime in the game. So the journey from London to New York, it, when it was on a ship... That was a time for reading tomes and obviously mm. practicing your shotgun skill off the, the back of the ship. Um, well, and, and also healing up from all the injuries you got in yeah. the last <laughs> Plus, a, a, long, a long sea voyage does give you sand. Just don't yeah. pass over a certain part in the Pacific and you're good. <laughs> and downtime between campaigns, maybe, and things like that. I can remember getting tomes and you've got the tome and then you're worried the keeper's going to have somebody break into your room and steal it. So <laughs> yes. you're like cutting a bit of the wall out and you know, hiding it and putting secret compartments because it's happened far too often. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, as well as being things that you can study, mythos terms can be used as reference works as well. How would that work? So they've got a mythos rating. So if you wanted to find out more about deep ones, you could go to it and, and make a roll and, and try and find out a bit more that the keeper could tell you. I mean, I would say if, if, if you were trying to find out more about ghouls and you were looking at the cult of ghoul, then 
well, might not even ask you to make that Cthulhu Mythos rating on that one because it's pretty clear that is about ghouls. Uh, whereas other tomes, you know, I think that Mythos rating just abstracts that. There's always the chance as well that they're going to ask for something completely off the wall that doesn't fit with the book at all. Mm. And even then, I think probably in that time that even the Mythos rating should either give you very limited info or none at all. On the other hand, these are potentially hodgepodges of whatever the author had in mind. They, you know, drew from lots of different sources. And, you know, maybe you do have a copy of The Cult of Ghoul and it focuses mostly on necromancy and black magic and communicating with ghouls and the dead and stuff like that. How to prepare uh, good meat. Yes, yeah. And then, you know, coincidentally, there's a, you know, a few footnotes about deep ones because, well, at some point the author came across that. Mm. Tried to eat a fish man, didn't work all that well. <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, there's the fact that these things erode your sanity. So how does that work? Again, when working on the rules, taking inspiration from the Mountains of Madness that we see, the realisation and the loss of sanity doesn't really seem to come to Dyer until he sees those things are actually real. So he's read the Necronomicon, but he's taken it as a, a fiction, as a mm. kind of folk tales, really, and myths. But then when he sees evidence that that's true, it's like all tumbles down and collapses in his mind and he takes the, the sand loss there. So what we present the player with is the choice when they read a tome, if they've not encountered the mythos firsthand, but they're reading about it for the first time, do you believe this stuff or not? So you get the mythos knowledge, but it may just be knowledge to you of a fiction, just like I've read Lord of the Rings. I know lots about Middle Earth, but I don't necessarily believe it's a real place. Or perhaps it's more like reading a religious text if you don't actually believe in the religion. But you're looking at it from uh, from the point of view of it being a mythology. That's what I said, Scott. I've read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I forgot who I was talking to. But you, you did say Middle Earth wasn't a real place. I'm pretty sure they just call it New Zealand now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you have that choice. Do you want to believe this stuff? In which case you take the sand loss then and there. Or you choose to not be a believer and you record the Cthulhu Mythos knowledge, but you don't take the sand loss. But then when you do meet Deep Ones or whatever it may be firsthand, suddenly all that stuff falls into place. And even if it's not related to Deep Ones, that Cthulhu Mythos knowledge is just an abstract that, well, if this is true, everything else must be true, and it all falls into place, and you lose the sand point at that time. So it's a gamble. So when you say that you lose sand points while reading if you choose to believe it... Is that a, a slow process of erosion, or do you get to the end of the book and think, fuck me, I'm scared? Yeah, I think that can be the case. I think one can read real-world books, and if you really buy into them, they can have a, a psychological effect. I don't necessarily think they send you insane. Again, I'll refer you to Finnegan's Wake. Well, okay. I don't know if that really does that, but... <laughs> yes. The first yes, page was bad enough. But I, I'm thinking in terms of the mechanics surrounding sanity outside of mythos tomes. So, you know, if you take a big enough hit of sand loss, you can suffer temporary or indefinite insanity. But that's, you know, something that's dependent on coming all at once. So for this process of reading a mythos tome and perhaps this slow build-up of, of realisation, would you consider that someone could be driven temporarily or, or indefinitely insane by reading a mythos tome? I would say so. I don't really have a problem with that. I think 
the fact that they've spent a year reading the Necronomicon, yes, it's a kind of slow build-up, but if they've really invested in it and really gone to that point where they're really getting the Cthulhu Mythos knowledge and they're believing it, then I can see it could have a, a psychological effect like that. And if you were doing this as part of an ongoing campaign, let's say that you're playing something like Masks or uh, Horror on the Orient Express, which is going on for months of in-game time, you know, travelling all around the world, you've got Matt's character, who, of course, is sitting there with his copy of the Necronomicon, thumbing through it all, cross-referencing everything. Mm-hmm. At what point in the campaign do you sort of say, oh, by the way, you know, you know, make your sand roll, let's see how much sand you lose as a result of this? It's a contrivance, but I think, you know, at the end of the duration of reading, I would, yep. it just kind of keeps it simple and, you know, I don't know if there's like <laughs> a last line in italics at the end of the book that breaks your mind, but sure. uh, I oh, mean... By the way, all this stuff's real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do we have something like that in when we ran Walker? Because I remember your character, Matt, ended up yeah. in a bad state in Walker in the Waste. I, I ended up with about 47 Mythos, the, about 12 or 13 San... And yeah, that was uh, that was one hit after another. But oh boy, that was a good ride. And that is another mechanical effect, of course, that yeah. gaining Cthulhu Mythos knowledge lowers your maximum sanity, which very rarely, in my experience, has a mechanical impact on the game because maximum sanity and actual sanity don't often meet, but mm-hmm. yeah, they but can they, do. They do more often in Pop Cthulhu. I found this when right. running the Two-Headed Serpent, that there are a number of times where, potentially at the end of a chapter, you do get quite a lot of sand back. And I found a few characters who are steeped in the mythos do start hitting that ceiling. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah, with the the group I'm running it for at the minute with um, Into the Darkness, uh, they seem to have a shed load of luck and a shed load of sand. I'm thinking, I've got some pretty nasty stuff to throw at them, and this ain't going to make a dent. <laughs> and of course, the other thing you get out of reading tomes is spells. So how do we approach that in our games? I mean, for a start, I mean, how do you decide what spells are going to go into a tome? By, by approach, you mean running towards it, shouting, gimme, 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 yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as keepers. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, it's suddenly different when you're in the keeper's seat, though, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I just hand them out like candy. <laughs> Here, take this, erode your sand, it's, give me your magic points. It's like handing out firecrackers to children. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's an idea. <laughs> because in D&D, it's like the player characters, a wizard, well, they have access and choose what spells they get in general. They get to choose the spells of the appropriate levels. But as a Call of Cthulhu investigator, you're very much down to what the keeper puts in your hands so when i'm running call of cthulhu i do look through the spells and think well which spells would be pertinent to this scenario and which spells would seem to fit here that's kind of how i judge it but certainly i mean i've read scenarios particularly older ones where you you get a tome that comes into play and it does seem to be a miscellany of spells that's mm. that's in there that you know perhaps one or two of them may be pertinent to the scenario but there's all sorts of random shit in there mm. I'll, I'll generally select a tome if i'm going putting it into a scenario on the basis of what spells that are in there that can be useful to them but also then at the back of my mind i'm still thinking yeah there's gonna be some mug in there that says oh i, I know i need to have a summon bind five vampire spell to get past the end of this campaign some mug is gonna do call Cthulhu because they think oh this has a fun sounding name <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's up to them how, which ones they pick and choose and then suffer the consequences from picking the wrong one. Worse still, though, when you take the advice of the rule book and disguise the spells. Because mm-hmm. um, there was a game that I ran 
it was one of the campaigns. I can't remember which one, Matt. But one of the spell titles was disguising a summon Cthulhu. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and at the table, you guys were talking about using this spell. And I was thinking, oh, Lordy, they haven't figured out what this spell is. Um, was, was it renamed Bring the Campaign to an Abrupt Halt? <laughs> so Light up my world, yeah. <laughs> so kind of, as a keeper, be careful what spells you put into the player's hands, especially when you're disguising them. But I guess you could allow players a Cthulhu Mythos knowledge role or some kind of roles to try and figure out what effects this spell will have rather than just making them try it blind, although that option is quite fun. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, that's that's my favourite approach. But something you just mentioned there, Matt, you know, made me think, because there are recommended spells in some of the tome listings in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook. I think they're all listed as recommended spells. It's not yeah. a definitive list in any of them. No, but it's. I, I guess how much do we take that as an instruction? How much do we take it as canon? Do we ever pay attention to that ourselves as keepers or do we just think we'll stick what we need in here no i've done it before i've I've used it partially to think well this book could be quite handy in one npc's hands but in another npc's hands it kind of breaks the story so sometimes i can twist the tome itself because one thing that appears in the misconic university source book for call of cthulhu is the concept of incomplete spells or damage spells mm. and likewise incomplete or badly translated mythos tomes where the information has been garbled to a point where some stuff is either useless or some stuff becomes outright bloody dangerous when you try mm. and use it. Yeah. So, say, mucking around with, yeah, you can present this as, say, a copy of Cult de Ghoul, but yeah, this thing isn't going to just give you information on ghouls. It might turn you into a ghoul if it's a particularly powerful copy or it might just have half the book and uh, not really do much at all they're kind of like homemade grenades yeah, yeah. they might work but they might just blow up in your hand mm-hmm. well it makes me think of all the uh, the rumors and the mythology surrounding the anarchist cookbook i don't know if you've ever encountered this oh I mean, yes. this is a book that was published in the late 60s early 70s initially yeah, and it's got all sorts of instructions in there for making explosives building bombs making drugs and a lot of it if you follow the instructions, we'll just plain get you killed. There were certainly rumours around at the time that it was put together by the CIA or the FBI, certainly you know one of the big intelligence agencies, as a way of actually getting would-be terrorists to kill themselves. And I, you could actually potentially use something like that in Call of Cthulhu. Mm. That perhaps, you know, if you've got some anti-mythos organisation, some group that is trying to stop people becoming cultists or, you know, stop cultists from ending the world or whatever, you could, you know, put out, say, that doctored version of Cult de Gaul, where all the spells in there either do nothing or do something really horrible. Mm. It's like a mythos version of the Darwin Award, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like that idea. Well, we talked a little bit there about how we decide what spells to use. How do we decide what tomes to use in our scenarios? There's a nice little paragraph at the beginning of the description of all the tomes that says, a very, in some cases, rough overview of what kind of contents it has. And that's a big one for me, rather than the spell list, is what information does it specifically convey? Because some of them are very broad, like the Necronomicon is, hey, it's everything, <laughs> um, down to something that's a significantly more narrow, like the uh, like the Xanthu tablets or the... Yeah. Um, or the Relia Text. Yeah, the Relia Text, exactly, yes. Because, yeah, we, we certainly used that in one of our games, you know, one of our published games, because it tied in very much with the kind of thing we were talking about in there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's two things I look at. One is the magnitude of the book in terms of the mythos knowledge it contains and the duration of the reading it requires. So, you know, is this a small time cultist, in which case they've got, you know, a small term, or is it like a big campaign where you might find the Necronomicon and so on? The other thing I look at is kind of like you were saying, Matt, the the paragraph of text, but sometimes just the name of it. So if, if it's a scenario about Deep Ones and Innsmouth, then the Rilieu text makes perfect sense. It perfect fit. If it's something set in Victorian London, you know, people of the monolith or something like that, it, it sounds like it fits the, the place and the time. And sometimes the language of the text, if it's in a language which I think my players are unlikely to have, like Greek, I'm perhaps a little more wondering, will they actually have that language? So if I really want them to have this content from the tome, I want to kind of consider what language the tome is in as well, or give the players advice when they create their characters or something like that, because you can end up with something that's fairly redundant. Or if it's a longer yeah. campaign, I guess they can go and get that. None of them speak Greek, perhaps. They can go and get a translation made. I think we've had that happen in a game as well. But that, yeah, that's a really interesting point because certainly in my early days of running Call of Cthulhu, I just tended to, to cobble together, you know, spontaneous campaigns out of whatever published scenarios were there. And, you know, the players would, you know, if they had surviving characters that would go between the scenarios, would, you know, just bounce between one scenario and another. And, you know, perhaps, yes, they did have some language skills, but whenever a tome came up in the scenario, it would be, you know, in a particular language, you know, say, you know, at some point they're going to come across a copy of Alizy for, you know, mm. the Latin translation of the Necronomicon. And no one in the group speaks uh, either Latin or Arabic. And I suppose what I lacked the confidence to do at the time was sort of think, well, that's going to be a bit shit for them. Why don't I substitute something else? Why don't I give them, say, a copy of the Sussex manuscript so you know they can get some of that information in English and they stand a chance of actually getting something useful out of it? Whereas, you know, all too often, they were just wandering around with all these tomes, which had, you know, potentially loads of valuable information in there, which they just couldn't read. They make good paperweights in the end. And often they're not essential to the scenario or campaign but they're an extra so if they don't have that language it's kind of like well tough luck i guess yeah and i suppose they can always sell them to raise funds for mm. their, their mission or or even swap them with with other mythos enthusiasts for something they can actually use i mean there's a scenario seed right there sort of a a mythos tome swap meet mm. it's almost uh, i haven't read it in fully but i'm sure there's that's got to be some work its way somehow into bookhounds of london Mm. I'm pretty so, sure so. if you ring up Noah Edmonds, you can do a swap shop <laughs> with the Necronomicon. Yeah, one copy of Nameless Horrors, one copy of Diverbis Mysteries. Give me the Necronomicon. Multi-dimensional swap shop. <laughs> then, related to that, when we go about creating one of our own tomes for a scenario, I mean, well, for a start, I mean, how often do we do that? And and you know, when we do, how do we go about doing it? My preferred tactic is to have a real-world occult book and then. Someone has scribbled uh, some note kind of in the margins, and it's those that provide insight mm. to say, well, they're talking about this, but when you twist it a little bit to become this, then it becomes something else. Like in um, one scenario, I took the book of all uh, the Seven Forbidden Arts, a Renaissance occult text, 
and then had so many scribbles down the margins, but even potentially been built on by one reader and then another owner after it and another one after that, that it's something that's built layer upon layer upon layer to become a mythos tome. But inherently, it starts off as just something mundane. Yeah, one of my scenarios, I had it that somebody had been recording onto tapes, kind of like their their thoughts and so on. And that collection of tapes formed a mythos tome. So I think... There are a a few things that a mythos tome is going to give the players. One is some clues in the scenario, potentially. So if there's some information that you might have got through a handout otherwise, that can be tied in with the tome that you've created. The other is mythos knowledge, so including mythos points. And the other is potentially spells. So those three things, and, you know, around those three things, you've got a bit of set dressing. You know, what's the book like? Is it like notes in the margin of another book? Is it cassette tapes? Is it videos? Is it, it could be all sorts of things, right? But mm. I love the idea of a mythos tome on Betamax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I tend to think of it very much in story terms, how that, that book came into being, what role it plays in the larger storyline, what kind of person would have created it. And one thing that, you know, certainly has provided inspiration to me over the years is the exegesis of Philip K. Dick. Hmm. So Philip K. Dick had a weird religious experience where he was hit by what he considered to be a sort of laser beam of pure information sent by an orbiting godlike satellite called Vallis that beamed knowledge into his head and made him realize that time was an illusion and we were still living in ancient Roman times. And that he was simultaneously Philip K. Dick in the modern world and an early Christian, a member of of one of the Christian cults, fighting against the Roman Empire. And he tried to process this in all sorts of ways, tried to make sense of what he believed might be psychotic delusions, but at the same time, certain aspects of it just, you know, rang particularly true for him. So he wrote millions of words about this just trying to make sense of all this and i keep thinking that you know someone who has this moment of revelation you were talking about that moment where you suddenly realize that all this mythos knowledge you had is now real that if they then try to process that you know they could well end up writing something like that or some kind of you know not necessarily a didactic book but this this personal journey through trying to understand what reality is to them anymore mm. it always i think i've mentioned again out, outside of the podcast the thing that most resonates with me is uh Brandolph carter's experience in through the gates of the silver key it's rather than stepping on through and suddenly finding yourself inside the body of one of the creatures on the added that yeah he's taking a peek through that door and seeing oh look there's little bits of me all over the universe in different spaces and times i'll write a book about it <laughs> So, Scott, have you got any ideas for ways you could use mythos tomes in your scenarios? I mean, one that occurred to me as we were talking about some stuff earlier in this episode is these bookworms that have been eating this copy of the Necronomicon, what has it been doing to them? <laughs> what, what, what if you have these, these bookworms and silverfish that have developed some form of sentience or, or magical power as a result of the bits of the Necronomicon they've absorbed? 
It's the mythos version of those bloody mice in <laughs> yes. um, the Break Today from Unknown Armies where they've eaten special orders and suddenly developed their own society at the back of the McDonald's. I don't know, but I'm now <laughs> visualising a kind of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here kind of milkshake made of those mangots. <laughs> <laughs> yum, well, yum. <laughs> well, there were all those experiments that Alan Moore referenced in Swamp Thing that with planarian worms where they teach them to run mazes and then take the, the worms, grind them up and feed them to other worms. And the worms would absorb the knowledge of how to run those mazes from the other worms they'd eaten. Mm. Pretty sure but, that's how it works. <laughs> but I, yeah, I'm now picturing someone sitting down reading that copy of the Necronomicon and just finding that these worms are now speaking to them or broadcasting thoughts and images directly into their heads. Uh, the, the one idea that's lingered with me for a long time now, and I will eventually one day, after I do all the research I need to do for it, get down into a scenario is more was reverse engineered from a tome that yeah this information inside a book has a devastating effect to the human mind if you take something like the king in yellow where it has the ability to warp reality as well what happens to the instruments used to create the book mm. so like a printing press for example what happens when that printing press is then used to make something more mundane does a little bit of weirdness then suddenly creep into that book Mm. And yeah, I was thinking the idea of going with a of printing press or other mechanisms involved in bookbinding and uh, and printing that then start leaking bits of uh, mythos into other more mundane books. It suddenly makes a special edition of Winnie the Pooh suddenly a really fucking scary thing to have on your bookshelf. <laughs> and it makes me think a little bit of that Stephen King story, Lovecraft's Pillow. Yes, yeah. Where yeah, you had this this magical item, this pillow that Lovecraft slept on, where all his dreams just bled into it and are absorbed within. Mm. I'm pretty sure they did an adaptation of that. Was it Tales from the Dark Side? Oh, I really can't remember. I, I know. I've definitely I've seen one of those shows around that kind of era. There was a TV version of it. I also found myself quite interested by the idea of uh, mythos tomes as an oral history, that we always consider them to be these written things. But what if there are cults who believe that they have got hold of secrets that are too dangerous to be written down and are only passed down orally. How are they conveyed? And I'm sort of riffing on that a bit mentally and thinking about what if, you know, to obfuscate that even further, that perhaps they go off and they only give part of the information to each person and it only really makes sense, it only has any power when all these people come together. Hmm. And if you really wanted to obfuscate it, what if they're, you know, uh, hidden in folk tales and, and other stories, songs, whatever, that, you know, ordinary people might get hold of and not realise? When, when the choir comes together, people hear the truth. Exactly, <laughs> yes. So what would you say your favourite mythos tome would be, if you had to pick one? See, I'm torn between two. Well, you can only have As... one. It's your desert island tome. <laughs> oh, damn it. In which I'm going to have to edge towards the one that's least useful, but more funny than for a keeper. More funny? Okay. Yeah. So, it's, it's a copy of Bob Monkhouse's uh, joke book. Oh, God. His, his famous joke book that was stolen, and obviously contains all the secrets of the universe. <laughs> a joke so... Oh, that's a very Monty Python sketch, isn't it? The, yeah. jo the killing joke yes, or the jokes yes. that's... Yeah. Oh, no. Come <laughs> <laughs> oh, on, out with it. Um, the Testaments of Carnamagus. Oh, which appears in The Treader of the Dust by Clark Ashton Smith. Yes. 
because it has this wonderful effect that if you sit there and, and this is just reading it out loud that says, if a sorcerer or study of the occult sits in their library on their own and reads this book out loud and says this word, it summons a, a demon floating baby that destroys them. Oh, shit. I've just read it out loud. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the hilarity that is caused in game occasionally where the, we've had it presented to players who have then translated it from Greek, making that 1% roll. We're saying, it's all Greek to me. Oh, look, oh, one. Yeah, I can read it. Right. Here's uh, the handout. Yep, here it is, uh, going through the whole thing and then getting to the end and going, oh, we need someone to say this to, to summon this demon-floating <laughs> baby. Right, little kid over there, <laughs> do you want to say this word on the, <laughs> on the count of three? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's one of the more dangerous tomes. It's, it's useful. It has uh, some information if you can penetrate it, but it's also one of those nice little improvised bombs waiting to go off. And what about you, Scott? Again, I'm Tom, but the one I'll decide on is probably the Revelations of Glarky. Uh-huh. Because in the fiction it comes from, it is created by sort of these hordes of the undead, these people who have been transformed into the living dead by Glarky. And it, it's almost like distributed processing, that in their downtimes, yeah, they, they write little bits of this, they put together the information that their god has now placed in their, their now dead brains. And you know, these things are gathered together and you know, they appear in all sorts of different ways. You know, they, there are collected volumes of them or there's bits of information that come through, sometimes hidden in pornography. Uh, but, but it's almost like this Samizdat element to it. It's, it's something dangerous, the, this information that's creeping out into the world from unwholesome sources in unwholesome ways. And, and the last volume, if it's the multi-volume set, is just hilarious. Hey, read this volume. Become your Golanak! <laughs> <laughs> well, my choice is a little along those lines, actually. I, I think I'd choose the Cult de Ghoul because it's such an archetypal mythos tome. And also with the concept that reading it can start to change you into a ghoul. Mm. I kind of like that idea. It's got mythos spells in it, typically contact ghoul. And who doesn't want to use contact ghoul? Because that's often such a a good kind of utility thing to have in a scenario because <laughs> if you can contact the ghoul and then learn something from it people always want to do that it seems like yeah an appealing idea but obviously it's you know it gives the keeper a lot of nasty things they can make the players see like a ghoul it's also got one of the best spells in the game what's that resurrection oh right yeah Bring back that pesky player. <laughs> or, hey, I'm just going to shoot the NPC and then bring him back. And if he still doesn't tell me what I want, shoot him again and bring him back again. <laughs> this is Matt's playing style writ large. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's significant that we've got through almost all of this episode with only a passing reference to the Necronomicon. And this is obviously the big, big tome, both in terms of page count and in terms of its influence in the game. You know, Lovecraft even wrote a history of it. And I think if you two are up for it at some point, we should do an entire episode about that because it is such a big thing to tackle. Bagzai saying Kalatu, Barada, Necktie. I wouldn't even try to stop you, Matt. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we have people to thank. We have actually a lot of people to thank. Well, for a start, let's say thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast and everyone who has at some stage backed us on Patreon. And we have a few new people to thank by name. Yeah, and first at the $1 level, a big thanks to Weston Flippo. Well, thank you very much, Weston. Thank you, Weston. 
And next, very common name as I found in my uh, recent uh, game online, the Dave Collective. In fact, we now have the Dave of Daves. I, I remember in, in the webcomic Narbonic, there was a secret society made up entirely of people called Dave. They're taking over the world one Dave at a time. There is. So anyway, mm. yes, thank you, Dave of Daves. Thank you, Dave. And thank you to Joe McMahon. Thank you, Joe. Hey, thanks, Joe. And thank you very much to Jonathan Baxter. Yep, thank you very much, Jonathan. Yes, thank you very much, Jonathan. And another one singular here, not Dave this time, but our thanks go out to Coco. Well, thank you very much, Coco. Thank you, Coco. And thank you very much to Anna Bauer-Baxter. Thank you very much, Anna. Hey, thanks, Anna. And thank you to Jordan Taylor. Hey, thank you, Jordan. Thank you very much, Jordan. And moving up to our $3 level here, we get our white Russians out, and we're toasting, first of all, uh, Michalis Mandelaris. So hopefully I've got your name right there. Well, thank you very much, Michalis. Thank you, Michalis, and cheers. Cheers. And thank you and cheers to Paul Owen. Cheers, Paul. Hey, cheers, Paul. And thank you and cheers to Ben Assaro. Hey, cheers, Ben. Thank you very much, Ben. Cheers. And our thanks and cheers go out to Paul Greenhall. So, thank you very much, Paul. Yes, thank you and cheers. Thank you, Paul. Cheers. And thank you and cheers to Eugene Doherty. Thank you, Eugene. Hey, cheers, Eugene. And thanks and cheers to Christian Harsbarger. And uh, hope I have your name right there. Hey, cheers, Christian. Thank you very much and cheers, Christian. And our last one on this for today, thank you and cheers go out to uh, the singular here, Natalie. Uh, cheers, Natalie. Yes, cheers and thank you, Natalie. Cheers, Natalie. Although we have previously announced that we are discontinuing our songs, we are still working our way through the list of everyone who backed us before we made that announcement. So there are a couple of people here who aren't going to escape. You know, the music police are definitely going to come for us now. And the first one of those is Joe Webb. Oh, thank you much, Joe, and uh, yeah, brace yourself. Yes, thank you, Joe, and and yeah, rejoice in the fact that you are one of the last people to experience this. Thank you, thank Joe, you Webb. Joe Webb. We don't we just don't press just flowers here. Yeah. familiar name here as well thank you and uh yeah brace yourself for this one go out to david gutierrez so thank you very much david yes thank you david we hope uh, this this does things to you thank you david silence in the library thank you david gutierrez thank you thank you thank you thank you very much thank you david thank you thank you david thank you thank you david thank you david thank you david Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Quiet in the reading room. Well, until next time, that's all we have for today. So it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm-hmm.